wish you all a happy fourth. I hope you're going to take the time to spend with uh, some friends and family, maybe blow a few things up, because uh, that's the patriotic thing to do. It's, it's actually kind of refreshing, isn't it, to wave the flag a little bit? I see, I see a lot of you wearing uh, patriotic colors this morning, the flag shirt. Uh, we've been through such a difficult, sort of interesting time in the history of our country where uh, for a lot of people, patriotism is kind of a no-no, and, and to sort of uh, proudly wave the colors and say, you know, we're, we're glad about where we live and we take pride in our country, it feels good. Feels good. Uh, it's a lot of debate in our nation, isn't there, right now, about whether whether we are in fact a great nation, or is this just a is this a greedy, oppressive, and racist culture? Certainly, we all understand that we have an imperfect history. None of us are really arguing that, uh, but. I am, and I think, uh, I think you are too, inspired by American ideals, these great ideas that are written into the fabric of who we are, this idea that all men are created equal, this, this uh, notion that we might be a land of liberty and justice for all. And yeah, we don't always get that right. We haven't always gotten that right. But it's those big ideas that resurface from time to time and drive the conversation forward. We're kind of in a time right now where we're so busy rejecting those ideas and creating really bad <laughs> ideas to take their place that it's, it's hard to see how the conversation goes forward from here. But these are really great ideas, really great principles. And even if we, even if we miss the mark sometimes, you want to have great ideas, great principles, ideals that help you move towards something better. Always. Uh, these ideas in American culture, these great ideas, are in fact great ideas because of Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people won't recognize that, but that is the truth. There were no ancient cultures that believed that all men were created equal. Do you know where that idea came from? It came from the church. It was the influence of the church that said, the last will be first. The meek will inherit the earth. There was no culture prior to that, including Jewish culture, that didn't think that the richest and the most powerful would always inherit everything. As a matter of fact, they believed that the richest and the most powerful had a right, sometimes a divine right, to inherit everything. That's why when Jesus tells his disciples that it's going to be so difficult for a rich man to enter the gates of the kingdom, they're shocked. They're appalled. Because the assumption, even in that culture, is the strong get stronger. This idea, these great principles upon which our liberty is based, come directly from Jesus, even if we don't recognize their source. Kind of echoes Paul's advice to us in Colossians. 
that the sacred cure, the cure for everything that ails us, is in fact the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that Christ is on his throne, that he rules over everything, that he is the master over everything, that he is the creator, he is the beginning, he is the end, he is all. We would say Jesus is the answer. And we might also say, well, that's kind of trite. <laughs> that is a little oversimplified, isn't it? Jesus is the answer. When I was in college, the big phrase that was going around was, let go and let God. So if you poured out your heart to somebody, you shared with somebody what you were struggling with, and they'd say, let go and let God, and it was like a little bit of bumper sticker theology to, 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 to sort of move you along. Like, that didn't really help me. Not even sure what that means, but thanks. Is it, just, is it just that? Is it just a trite answer? Jesus is the answer? The supremacy of Christ is the ultimate cure for everything that, that is a problem in this world? Is that too oversimplified? I wonder if sometimes the tendency that we have to continually be dabbling, we dabble in spiritual things. We dabble with Christianity and then we dabble with worldly things and we're kind of back and forth and we're straddling this, this fence. Is that because we don't really believe that Jesus is enough? Certainly in the church when we practice legalism and we focus on all the rules and we make it about following all the rules and just keeping your nose clean and being a good person, whatever, however we define that, that's much easier than actually making Jesus first. The sort of grand spiritualism, these uh, ideas that we come up with, the presentations that we make, the uh, Gnosticism that was in the early church that Paul writes a little bit about here and that, that continues today, this idea that, that we have some sort of special knowledge, that some of us have some special knowledge, special understanding that the rest of the, the world, the rest of the people don't have, the rest of the church doesn't even have. All of this is about elevating us, about leaving us in control at some level and not allowing Jesus to be who Jesus is. Because we're not really sure that Jesus being supreme, that Jesus being in control of everything, we're not really completely positive that that answers the questions that we're asking. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, we're in verse, starting with verse 12 today, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you have a, has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Doesn't that sound nice? Doesn't that sound pleasant? Would you like to be in a place where that's happening? 
in a lifetime of going to church. In uh, the majority of my lifetime serving in the church, I have a few moments that I can think of where I saw that kind of kingdom living burst through onto the scene where people were actually living as if Jesus reigned. Those moments, those glimpses of the kingdom have captivated my mind, captivated my heart. They've driven everything forward. They are the big idea, the great idea, the great principle, the ideals. And I have to ask, of course, you know, why don't we see that more? Why don't we experience that more? We would all love to have that. Why isn't it more common? And I have to acknowledge about myself that despite my best intent, despite the fact that I want that as much as any of you, maybe more, I find myself spending all of my time and all of my energy just making things go. Just doing the stuff that we always do. Just making sure that the lights come on at the right time and that the equipment hopefully doesn't rebel so much that we can't get through the service. I spend all of my time trying to figure out how to do church and forget to spend as much time as I need to just teaching us how to be church. It's a pleasant idea, but but I think we're afraid. I think we're afraid that it's not real. I've been talking to you about some of these deceptive philosophies that Paul brings up, this things that, that we believe or maybe not believe. Maybe, maybe we don't even believe them. Sometimes we don't believe that they're true, but we still act as if they are. We still function as if these things are true. I shared three with them, three uh, uh, beliefs that are often present within the church. A couple of weeks ago, if you didn't hear that message, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But uh, just by way of review, Sometimes we have, tr- we have taken the rituals and the rules of salvation and we have made that a substitute for actually following Jesus. Sometimes we have taken church membership and we've made that a substitute for discipleship. And sometimes we've held up the existence of the organized church, the existence of the local congregation, the institution, and we've said that's what's important, and we've, we've banked on that instead of the mission of Jesus Christ. I want to share three more with you today. And the first has to do with this passage, because this is one of those one another passages. A lot of one another passages in the New Testament. Paul gives us several of them. And there is this persistent belief that the one and other passages in Scripture are too idealistic to actually obey. Why don't, why don't we do these things? Why do they just sound pleasant, but we don't actually pursue them? Because we, we kind of know that we're broken. We kind of know that it would be a challenge to actually do those things. It would be hard to achieve that. 
And to some extent, we've sort of given ourselves an out. You know, we say nobody's perfect, and that becomes the end of the story. We no longer work towards the ideal because we recognize that the ideal is out of reach. This is the reason that we sometimes hold ancient grudges against one another rather than forgiving as we have been forgiven. Jesus, of course, tells us to forgive our enemies. It's a challenging notion. I remember preaching a sermon one time about forgiving our enemies, and one of the ladies afterwards said, absolutely not. It is a bridge too far. Like, well, at least you're being honest. It's very difficult for us to think about forgiving our enemies, as Jesus tells us to do, when it's so difficult for us to forgive our friends. But this, this one another business, is it, is it an ideal? Is it just a pleasant sentiment that's, that's too unrealistic to attain? Or is it meant to be practical? Is it meant to be something that we actually do? And I want to submit to you this morning that it is, in fact, a practical ideal. That it is this great idea, this principle, this ideal that we're supposed to be working towards, even though we know that because of our humanity, because of our brokenness, because of our fallenness, we probably never perfectly achieve this in this lifetime. But we are meant to work towards it in practical ways. We are meant to live it. The church in the first century was an organic community. And they had a shared mission and a shared set of virtues that come directly from Jesus Christ. What is born out of that is remarkable. I don't know any, I, I can't really give words to it. I can't express how incredible it is that the church does what it does in that first 100 to 200 years. It's absolutely astounding. The rate at which the church grows, the influence that it develops. And I'm not talking about Constantine and after the rise of the Holy Roman Empire and all that. I'm talking about before, when it was just this organic movement, all of these weirdos tucked into dark corners across the Roman Empire. What happens among the people of that church is astounding. There is absolutely no accounting for why these outsiders come to have such a powerful influence over all of Western culture, an influence that persists today such that we live sort of in the fishbowl of the Christian world. And even if we don't recognize the influence it's having on us, our ideology and our morality is born out of those Christian principles. The reason that they had that influence is, yes, of course, because of the gospel. Of course, it's because of these revolutionary teachings, and they were revolutionary. Not just that Jesus saves, but that the last will be first. 
revolutionary ideas. But it's not the ideas alone that carry it all forward. It is the ideal, ideas, the ideals, the principles paired with a living example of a church that lives for those ideals and loves each other. That's where it comes from. That's where all of this energy arises. The church becomes an irresistible witness for the gospel. And I got to say that without that witness, without the church living for Jesus and loving one another, the words of the gospel will fall flat and are falling flat right now in our culture. Now, the words are no less powerful, no less meaningful, no less significant than they were in the first century. But without the witness of a passionate, loving church, the words do not resonate in the culture. You see, we, we don't have enough experience of the kingdom of Christ to believe in it without seeing it. And the only way that we can see it is through Christian fellowship. But we have a very different idea about what it means to be a part of the church. We have a, a broken philosophy that it is a privilege of church membership to manipulate organizational priorities. Now, this is a church that I grew up in. I can remember very well. There were people who worked very hard making sure the church was what they wanted it to be, what they expected it to be, what they thought it should be. And they had all kinds of methodologies for making sure that that happened, just as we do today. They wanted a vote in what happened in the church. We have a big history here of voting about things. And we're all patriotic Americans. We believe in democracy. I think democracy is a pretty good thing. And I'll, I'll tell you, uh, the, our, our representative democracy, probably the best form of human government on earth. And it works sort of. We all believe in it. We all want our vote. If we all watch the news about what happens in Washington, D.C., well, there's a reason that we call it a swamp, and it's not just because of the lousy land that it was built on. It's because so much of that system is broken, and I don't care what political party we're talking about. It's broken. Why is it broken? Well, democracy, for all of its benefits, has some really serious weaknesses. And here's the big one. Everybody gets a vote. That's the strength. That's also the weakness. Everybody gets a vote. So, if you're going to vote in the best interest of your community, your state, your nation, you get a vote. If you're going to vote for the candidate you think is prettiest, you still get a vote. If you're going to vote because you think the candidate is going to give you freebies when they get into office, you still get a vote. Sometimes two or three. This is where it all begins to break down. But it's all we've got. It's the best we've got. It's the best that we can do. So everybody gets a vote. 
The problem is that eventually, eventually the majority starts to take things in a direction that it maybe shouldn't go. That cannot happen in the church. The majority rule in the church is problematic because at all times, at all times, the church has to be responsive to the will of Christ and not the will of men, not even if the majority of us approve. And so the church is not a democracy. And the only real vote we have is holding one another and holding our leaders accountable to serving Christ and being true to God's word. But there are other ways that we get what we want. We can threaten to leave. We can leave or we can threaten to leave. This is very popular. We had a couple of guys in my church growing up that would regularly threaten to leave if they didn't get their way. And I got to be honest with you, church leadership bent over backwards all the time to make sure they stuck around. We do a lot of complaining. We know that the squeaky wheel often gets the grease. We complain often piously, often assuming an air of superiority. We leave ministries because they're not being done the way that we think they should be done. Or we bargain and say, I'll be a part of this ministry if it adapts to what it is that I want to do. And then we, we use something I'll call structured giving. We'll provide support to the local congregation as long as the money goes where I want it to go. The elders, ministers, other church leaders, they, they can influence the spiritual direction of the church, but my money will dictate that the church will be what I want it to be. Am I stepping on some toes? I should be because I'm stepping on my own too. The reality is we have all played these games. We have all participated in this kind of nonsense. We're all guilty of this, and this is enshrined here in our documentation. It's enshrined in our history. It's got to stop. We've been a little too busy pleasing ourselves to worry too much about what Jesus wants. And we have spiritualized that by saying we're actually working for Jesus in doing it. And we have played the game. We've gone along because of another broken belief. A belief that I have to be honest with you, I'm tempted to buy into on a regular basis. And that is this. It is better to have many who are fond of Jesus than just a few who are faithful to Jesus. We'll all feel better if we can fill the room. Whether or not that means deeper conviction, whether or not that means that people are serving Christ, whether or not that means that Christ is reigning supreme, we'll feel better if there's a crowd. It's our human nature. The church is sort of a numbers game. And we in ministry are guilty of this a lot. We would like everything, every event, every service that we sponsor to be well attended, to be just, we want to pack the house. 
Why? Well, there is a part of us that wants to pack the house because we'd like to think that more people in our culture are responding to the message of Jesus. But there is a very real part of us that would like to pack the house because it would make us feel like we're doing a really good job. Make me feel special. But you have to remember, even during the ministry of Jesus, that there were thousands who came to hear Jesus for his messages outside the cities. They would come, and they would stay all day, and they would listen to him. And at the end of the day, they would all walk away angry because what he taught was just too hard. And he'd be left with 12. We have to remember that there were crowds of people, throngs of people, celebrating and calling out to Jesus when he entered Jerusalem. And that less than a week later, they are chanting for his crucifixion. Crowd of people who's fond of Jesus will not have nearly as much impact on the world than a handful of people who are actually following Jesus. Those who learned to follow and to love Jesus literally turned the whole world upside down. It wasn't the masses it began with that handful. When I was 11 years old, I was packed off to a camp that was being led by a group of student missionaries. I've talked about this before. Some of you know this story, but I was 11 years old. Go off to this camp. I'm watching these student missionaries who'd spent their whole summer together serving around the western United States. And they put this camp on for two weeks. And I spent two weeks with those young people. They had committed 10 weeks of their summer to serving Jesus. They had lived together in community to do it. They had studied their Bibles constantly. And as I sat in devotionals, I sat in circles, I sat in classes with those young people. I saw something that I had never seen before. I saw people actually living for Jesus. Now, I have to tell you, I went to a good church. It was filled with good people, people that I, I still love and care about today. People who had a marvelous impact and influence on my life. But somehow, growing up in that church, I had missed that people actually live this stuff. And then I got this glimpse. That glimpse changed my life. And I, don't, I don't just mean that I got baptized that week, although I did. I mean that I have spent my life trying to serve the church, trying to recreate that vision of kingdom in local congregations. Because of that glimpse. The irresistible power of that has impacted my life in immeasurable ways. The pull of true discipleship and fellowship began a transformation in my life. And that's why this message about the sacred cure, the supremacy of Christ, is so important to me. It's so important to me that we get this because... We could be that irresistible influence for others. 
Paul goes on in Colossians uh, verse 15. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the sacred cure for the church. Paul has been giving it to us. We've been going through it piece by piece, but let's kind of put all those pieces together here this morning. First thing Paul says to us is grow up. Grow up. Grow in wisdom, grow in knowledge, grow in the joy of the Lord, grow in his love, be rooted and built up in Jesus Christ. And the fruits of this will be evident. If you are not growing in the Lord, that fruit will be apparent. And if you are, it will be glorious. Now, I have to say, when new believers and new members come through our doors, when, when, when people come to us afresh, generally speaking, they're pretty content. Oh, it's those of us who've been around forever who learned to whine and cry. Paul often talks about, you know, the, the church having this problem of, of people who should be mature sometimes acting like the biggest babies. Sometimes we are the biggest babies. Sometimes we're whining and crying and demanding our own way. We've been around long enough. I suppose we think we deserve it. We're so busy doing church. We're so busy with the business of the institution. Sometimes we forget purpose. We forget why we're here. Are we actively pursuing Jesus? Are we actively pursuing a deeper knowledge of Jesus? Because I got to tell you folks, if you are not growing right now in your relationship with Jesus Christ, you are losing ground. That's how it works. Because we are completely surrounded in a sea of bad ideas. And if you're not actively working to put good ideas into the system, the bad ideas are finding their way in through the cracks. And Paul says you need to think and you need to feel like Jesus. If we can grow in our knowledge and our wisdom of Jesus, then we can entrust our perception of things to him. You remember Peter. Peter's sort of the natural de facto leader among the apostles. And there's that point where Peter comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, you need to stop talking this way. You remember that? What does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan, because you are thinking like a man. It's an interesting criticism, isn't it? Because guess what Peter is? He's a man. What do you expect him to think like, Jesus? You are thinking like a man. This is the interesting thing here. This is what we need to take away from this, this interaction Jesus actually expects us to stop thinking like people, to grow in our relationship with him such that we can begin to think and feel like he does. Proverbs say that there is a, a, a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. How much of our walk with Jesus, how much of our church life is driven by what we think and feel? Paul says, set 
your heart and your mind and your life in Jesus Christ and allow that to begin to change your perspective on everything. Then he says, wear your new identity. Put it on like a suit of clothes. He says, we have this new life. It's hidden in Christ. It's defined by Christ. And so we put to death the broken things. We shed them off like old skin and we burn them and we put on the new self as Jesus is revealing it to us. We put on compassion. We put on humility. We put on patience. We put on love. The culture around us says, choose your identity and then force the rest of the world to accept it. In fact, force God to accept your chosen identity. Jesus says, and Paul echoes, Let me tell you who you are. And then you begin to adapt to what I've told you. Put on this new suit of clothes. It might not fit right when you first try it on. It might feel itchy and new and different. But over time, it's going to wear in. It's going to be right because of the transformation that's taking place within. The old self is a reflection of where we've been and how broken we've been. The new self is a reflection of where Christ is taking us. Make a deliberate choice. Take the follow and put on the things of Jesus. Then he says, basically, let Jesus be Christ, which seems like strange advice for believers, but how often do we reign in the places where Christ is supposed to reign? And we use our vote and our service and our money to to dictate what the priorities will be What about Christ's priorities? Does the peace of Christ rule? Because that's that's what Paul tells us to do. Let the peace of Christ rule. And thankfulness, are we grateful? And then Paul says, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, sail your fellowship. Teach and admonish one another is what he says. We are are aboard a ship together. Fellowship. A lot of people have sort of come to the conclusion that the fellowship is a mission-free zone. That its existence is all that really matters. If the church is here to meet our needs, if the church is here to make us feel important, if the church is here to marry and bury us, then we're doing all right. We're sometimes more preoccupied with ourselves than we are with the mission. And we sort of assume that the ship that we're on is a cruise ship. But really, you know, other than occasionally coming in and listening to a presentation on timeshares, the rest of the time is just going to buffets and shows and playing shuffleboard. This is not a cruise ship. This is a ship on a mission. This is a ship on which you are expected to be crew because there are no passengers. If you are in Christ and you are in here, then Jesus has a purpose for you in this place. And understand this, if you are not doing what Jesus is expecting you to do, either someone else is carrying your load or that job's just not getting done. Some of us are disengaged. We think that the officers can run the whole ship without a crew. Some of us 
have chosen a job, and it's the job that we want to do, not the job that needs doing. But the church is a vessel. And on this vessel, there are really only two priorities, two big ideas. One is the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the supremacy of the captain. The captain is in charge entirely. And two is our love for one another. If we are all responding to the supremacy of Jesus Christ and our love for one another, the mission will happen. And finally, he says, do it all for Jesus. Whatever you do, without exclusion, how you live, where you work, how you conduct your home, how you interact with your enemies, all of this you do as to the Lord. One of the highest principles in the Christian faith is that we do everything as if we're doing it for the Lord. I've got to be honest with you, there's a lot of things that I do for the Lord that I don't do as if I'm doing them for the Lord. Why are we here? Are we here to serve ourselves or are we here to serve Jesus Christ? Is that the practical ideal? Is that where we're working towards, even though we know we need a lot of grace in its pursuit? We are not here for ourselves. We're here for Jesus. And so this morning, I just I want to I, I want to offer you this challenge, and if you will, kind of a kind of a permission for some of you. You think maybe I'm a little bit crazy. You won't hear this from a preacher very often. Here's the thing. I just want you to figure out one thing. Just one thing that you can do with great passion. That you can that you can do with all the excellence that you can muster, and that you can do really for Jesus and not for yourself. Just one thing. And commit to do that. Make sure it's something that we actually need. Commit to do that for the Lord. And here's the part that's crazy. Some of you are already committed to several things. I want to give you permission to dump some of them. We're often afraid to do this. We're afraid that if we let people off the hook... We won't have enough warm bodies to fill all the spaces. Folks, we're not looking for warm bodies to fill the spaces. We're looking for passionate, excellent servants of Jesus to fill those spaces. If you can do one thing and do it just for Jesus, do that one thing. If you're doing six things and you need to let some of them go, you have my permission let them go. Because I would rather that you serve with joy than that you serve overburdened. And we'll work to get somebody who's not doing anything <laughs> to, to pick up the slack. You guys, come on up. This is who we are supposed to be, we are supposed to be, we are supposed to be a fellowship of people 
who are all crew members, who all serve, who all have a role to play, who all teach one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, who sing to each other songs of fellowship, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, who raise up the Lord as supreme over everything, and who love each other so much that the world cannot ignore the gospel message when we tell it.